Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. And now for the conclusion of the second half of this article. There were, of course, cases in which a former Freemason exemplified the Nazis' fears. Franz Skupin, deputy mayor of Mankiewicz, provided one such case of what Hitler called a camouflaged Freemason. In 1936, the party found out that he had been a Freemason. Skupin was then dismissed from his position when he refused to sign the Erklärung, claiming that it violated his oath as a Freemason. After Skupin's removal, the Bavarian political police sent a general letter throughout the country pointing to Skupin as proof that you could take the man out of Freemasonry, but you could not always take the Freemasonry out of the man. Skupin, however, like Muffelman, embodied the exception more than the rule. When Hitler declared the amnesty in 1938, most Freemasons applauded, although some still felt cheated. One such man, Herr Uberle of Karlsruhe, expressed to his colleague his frustration over January 30th as the pivotal date for leaving the lodges, claiming that he had never known the extent of the party's mistrust towards Freemasons, and he had left immediately upon finding out. He further commented that he had only joined the fraternity for business reasons, and that if March 15th had been chosen instead, the Reich would have avoided punishing undeserving Germans. Another example, Fritz Kress, expressed his own anger in correspondence with the German Red Cross. Kress, a resident of Krefeld, had received a card from the Red Cross asking him to explain his lodge membership or else face expulsion. I belong to a Christian lodge, Kress argued in his response, not one of the other ones. My loyalty is beyond reproach because I was not in one of the other lodges, and I resent that the amnesty only covered Freemasons up to the third degree. I resent being treated as a second-class citizen. Reactions to the amnesty within the party were mixed. Albert Wilhelm Porcy wrote a letter to the SS in which he bitterly resented seeing Freemason scoundrels who dared wear the emblem of SS supporters. Some party critics calmed down once they learned that the amnesty had restrictions and still barred Freemasons from holding office, at least officially. Other critics complained that the amnesty stole employment and promotion opportunities by giving them to newly admitted Freemasons. Still others objected that Freemasons never put down their Masonic oaths and thus letting them in the party was allowing an enemy in the back door. Some parties' members simply did not care. A party report stated with a degree of shock, complete indifference in party circles stood in contrast to critical attitudes. When war broke out, the debate started all over again, for former Freemasons in the military, its auxiliaries, and civil defense organizations. Many German Freemasons had fought in World War I, and many of those had served as officers. With Hitler spouting rearmament rhetoric as part of the Nazi program, the SD noted that many Freemasons preempted draft notices, hoping to document their loyalty to the fatherland with their enlistment. The military, however, had the same problem as the civil service. Freemasons were qualified, capable, and in many cases already in. For example, the Reichsfuhrer SS commented that purging the German Red Cross of Freemasons was undesirable because the majority of Red Cross doctors were Freemasons. 
Otto Bernsdorf, a former high-degree Freemason, made ripples when he appealed to an old World War I comrade, General Wilhelm Keitel, to pull some strings and get him a commission. In June of 1936, Army recruiters began asking for official clarification of policies regarding Freemasons in the military due to the number of Freemasons trying to serve. With their hands still full dealing with Freemasons in the party, the Bavarian political police, under the jurisdiction of the SS, said the problem should be turned back to the military and dealt with through the established channels, leaving the military to decide on its own. The military decided to follow policies similar to those of the civil service and the party, including the use of an Erklerung, though the military's qualifications were a bit stricter. Whereas the party limited membership to men who had left the lodges before the seizure of power and had never gone beyond the third degree, the military set the second degree as the maximum, and said former Freemasons had to have left before January 10, 1932. The army stated that advancement to the third degree could not be in accord with the strict sense of honor of a German officer, and that those already in the third degree have sunk deeply into the liberal Freemason philosophy. For those former Freemasons who met the requirements, the military, like the civil service, had a long list of positions from which they were still barred, including serving as pilots, military court officers, seconds in command to any unit, or any position that dealt with matters concerning personnel or involved decision-making. The military, like the civil service, feared that allowing just one former Freemason into the personnel office would lead to a deluge of exceptions and special considerations being handed out to former Lodge Brethren. It is worth noting, however, that all discussion of Freemasons in the military was limited to their service as officers and leaders. There was almost no comment about their serving as enlisted men. Of course, the majority of Freemasons were a bit long in the tooth to be dodging bullets and storming bunkers, and most Freemasons, being professionals in civilian life, were probably too proud to accept anything less than a commission. But the fact remains that there were no restrictions regarding enlisted service. Former Freemasons only ran into trouble when they sought leadership. The SS faced problems similar to the Army's. There were enough applications that Reinhard Heydrich himself stepped in and clarified that former Freemasons were only to be admitted in the most exceptional of cases, where the individual had a long history of loyalty and service to the party. Like other party administrators, Heydrich realized that a complete shutout was not the answer and would deny the USS useful members. But at the same time, he wanted to stress that exceptions were made on a case-by-case basis, wanting to avoid setting a precedent for future applicants. Such exceptions were forthcoming. One former Freemason, the Meister of a Lodge in Hamlin, left, joined the SS, and returned at the head of the SS group tasked with forcibly closing the very lodge to which he had previously belonged. Another former Freemason, Dr. Heinrich Butfisch, was also able to join the SS, despite the RSHAs describing him as one whose mentality was geared to international cooperation. Thus, even the most ardent and zealous Nazi auxiliary admitted former Freemasons, though to be sure, there were also rejections. The amnesty, as it did with Freemasons entering the party, affected policy regarding Freemasons in the military. The Oberkommando der Wehrmacht decreed that in accordance with the amnesty, any Freemason who had never gone above the third degree nor served in a position of authority in the lodges could be used in war service and could even be accepted into the officer corps with restrictions. Those who had served in lodge leadership or gone above the third degree but left the lodges before January 30th would be examined on a case-by-case basis. Those who had left the lodges after January 30th and had gone above the third degree were strictly prohibited. 
the Luftwaffe implemented similar restrictions, although the Kriegsmarine refused to be so strict. For those who met the qualifications or received an exception, their war duties were limited. Any officer of the new Wehrmacht argued the OKW was more than just a civil servant. He was a leader of men, and therefore had to be more rigid in his worldview and held to a higher standard than a civil servant. Additionally, the Wehrmacht recognized that the amnesty applied to former humanitarian lodge members as well as old Prussian, leaving open the possibility for pacifism, internationalism, and humanitarianism to creep in. To that end, officers who were former Freemasons were relegated to positions far from the front lines. Part of this restriction was precautionary, citing the World War I field lodges, but part was wholly justifiable on the grounds that any Freemason veterans would have been in their 40s and 50s and relegated to the rear based on general army regulations. Furthermore, the former restriction on what services a former Freemason could perform remained in effect. By 1940, the need for competent officers strained the available manpower pool to the point that the OKW toyed with the idea of further relaxing its restrictions on Freemasons and allowing those who had reached the fourth degree and thus made to the jump of high-level Freemasonry to serve as long as they had left the lodges before January 30th. Not only did this concession redraw the limits yet again, it also put more pressure for similar concessions on the party and the civil service. With this in mind, the OKW ultimately decided to reject the proposal in general, but leave open the possibility of exceptions for very rare cases. In June 1942, however, a memo from the chief of the OKW, General Hermann Reinick, said that due to the war situation, former Freemasons could be used as replacement officers at the front in exceptional cases. Once again, necessity and practicality trumped ideology. Paramilitary organizations were not as strict as the Wehrmacht. In 1939, long before the fortunes of war increased the need for manpower, the issued a letter to all 15 of its Landesgruppen laying down the guidelines for the admission and use of former Freemasons in accordance with the amnesty decrees. The letter stated that any former Freemason could join the Reichsluftschutzbund without regard to degree, date of exit, or office held. Those wanting to hold office had to jump through a few more hoops, but could do so as long as they completed an Erklerung and got a letter of approval from the appropriate Gauleiter. In summary, over the course of the Third Reich, the policies regarding former Freemasons in the party, civil service, and the government changed continuously, adapting to the needs of the party. In 1933, Freemasons were to be banned from the party and the government. By 1939, two amnesty decrees acknowledged what was already a fait accompli, and by the middle war years, the policy was all but dead. The main reason for the compromise was the fact that former Freemasons were simply too valuable to reject because of an old association. Even the SS acknowledged several times that the policy of removing Freemasons was not only impractical, but also unnecessary. Furthermore, Freemasons had been pushing for years to work with the party, regardless of the fate of the lodges and Christian orders. With the threat of war looming at the beginning of 1939, the RSHA office in charge of Freemasonry reported, Many Freemasons are worried that in case of war, all Freemasons will be put in camps to halt their corruptive influence. They fear that they won't be able to show their patriotism and point out that many former communists and folk now proudly wear the party badge while the majority of Freemasons are not allowed the same opportunity. Freemasons wanted in, and the party was hesitant to throw them out. The party's struggle in balancing ideology with practicality emerges from its attempts to decide where to draw the line. First, 
all Freemasons were banned, but then men like Buck argued that a blanket policy was excessive, suggesting instead separating old Prussian from humanitarian. Bro's letter, however, showed that there were Nazi-minded men in the humanitarian lodges, and division by branch was insufficient. Buck then suggested the Erklerung as a means of picking out the honorable men, regardless of which lodge they had belonged to. Next, the line was drawn according to when an individual had left the lodges, arguing that those who left before the seizure of power did so honestly, while those who left after did so to quickly put as much distance between themselves and the lodges as possible. In 1935, Gaurichter von Moltke added the restriction limiting exceptions to those of the third degree or lower. Finally, Hitler's declaration of amnesty came in 1938. At every step along the way, exceptions permitted accompanied each new policy, paving the way for the next new policy shift. What few restrictions remained, for example, barring from office, were enforced so sporadically that enforcement is not even the right word. Those in charge of carrying out the policy recognized the value of keeping the men, even if they had belonged to a Masonic Lodge, and either refused to carry out the order or campaigned vigorously to keep the Freemason in question in his office. Exploring this compromise reveals the ad hoc nature of Nazi bureaucracy and contributes to the current reevaluation of Nazi terror and the Nazi police state, replacing the old view of the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent police state with carrot and stick tactics and revealing a substantial amount of agency. The case of the Freemasons thus shows how compromise was available even to groups that were in the party crosshairs. Freemasons had much to offer, knowledge, reputation, wealth, skill, experience, and influence. The only drawback was their association with a group whose ideology was fundamentally opposite that of National Socialism. The regime needed to find a way to embrace the Freemasons while rejecting Freemasonry. In searching for a solution, the party demonstrated its tendency to give a free hand to bureaucrats at the local level, despite specific instructions from higher authorities. In the case of Germany's Jews, the absence of specific central direction led to what Hans Mommsen called cumulative radicalization and the death camps. For Freemasons, however, the decentralization of decision-making led to compromise and acceptance. Frequently influenced by the Lodge brothers themselves, all centering on the definition of Freemason. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and Lodge members. Visit us online at SolomonStaircase.org.